Let's move on now to lesson number 58, the mystery kingdom sprouting. We've looked at mystery kingdom sowing. And now we move on to look at verses 24 to 43, the parable of the wheat and tares. Parable of the wheat and tares. I think I'll hold off reading it for now. So in the first parable, the parable of the sower and the seed, the disciples were told that their primary responsibility during the course of this new form of the kingdom on earth was to be the sowing of the seed, the spreading of the word of God, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel. They were also forewarned, as we just talked about, that three out of four heart types or soil heart types upon which the seed was sown would not produce fruit. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes as they've heard this interpretation of the first parable. For those who had been taught from their childhood that the kingdom of heaven, you know, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth, they had been taught that this was to be a time when the Messiah would finally rule on earth with a rod of iron and no evil would be tolerated. You know, everybody going into the kingdom would be truly a child of God. So hearing this, you know, that three out of four people are going to reject the gospel and this is the new form of the kingdom on earth, hearing this, that was a very new and a very difficult concept for them to understand. How could this new form of the kingdom of heaven tolerate both believers and non-believers, especially when it looks like at least three-fourths would be non-believers? That would certainly not result in the kingdom of righteousness and peace that the Old Testament had prophesied. So after hearing the first parable and its interpretation, the parable of the sower, they were probably wondering what Jesus was going to do with all those who rejected the seed. You know, the uh, roadway, the rocky, and the rep, rep, reprobate soil types. What's he going to do with, with all those unbelievers? So he gave them the second parable, which talks tells us what Jesus says will happen with all the unbelievers. And what we're going to do, first of all, is, and this is during the mystery kingdom, you know, between the time of his cro- the rejection and his return. And we're going to look, first of all, at the introduction of this parable, which is known as the parable of the wheat and tares. And then we're going to look at the interpretation. And we'll begin by just the parable itself. And this, for this, we look at verses 24 to 30. So jump all the way over to verse 24 of Matthew 13. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying... The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Whose field? His own field, the sower's field, his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat, where? Into my barn. All right, again now in this parable, we have a sower sowing seed, which we see here is described as good seed. Good seed. There's nothing, remember we've talked about, there's nothing deficient, nothing wrong with the seed. It's good, life-giving seed. The one who sowed the seed, according to verse 27, is the one who owned the field on which this good seed was sown. But something happened while the landowner and his workers were sleeping. Now, there's nothing wrong. I know some commentators make a big deal about the fact that this landowner and the servants weren't alert. But, you know, after you've sown your field, you do deserve some rest, so there's no condemnation about the fact that they were sleeping. It was night, and they went to bed. And while they were sleeping, the landowner's enemy came, and what did he do? He sowed tares among the wheat, and then he slipped away unseen. Now, a tear is a variety of what is called a darnel. It's a weed, which looks very similar to wheat until it, the, it matures and produces. The wheat produces a head of grain, whereas the tear doesn't. There's no fruit on the tear, no head of grain, and it actually turns sort of a gray color. So when, there's a, when it's time, when it's ripe, you can tell the difference. But before there's a head of grain on the wheat, you cannot really tell the difference between the tares and the wheat. The word among, in verse 25, where it says the enemy came and he sowed tares among the weak, you don't see this in the English, but in the Greek, that word among is a very strong Greek word, which means he sowed them thoroughly. He didn't just take some uh, Darnell seeds and scatter them like this. I mean, he stayed one spot like this, you know, like this. A very thorough sowing of, of the uh, tares. So he was very efficiently um, sowing the field heavily and thoroughly. And this seems incredibly cruel, doesn't it, that he would do this? But it was a common enough form of revenge back in those days that the Roman government had to actually make a specific law against doing this and uh, a prescribed punishment for anyone who was caught sabotaging his neighbor's crop. So apparently this was done. can't imagine somebody today going into a farmer's field and over, you know, after he just planted his crop and then oversowing it. But this was something very commonly done back in those days. All right, not very commonly, but it was common enough that they made a law against it. So the enemy in this parable, we find out, was not caught. He did this... Uh, his evil work under cover of darkness and isn't that typical of the evil one and he slipped away unnoticed the landowners and his uh, and the workers never even knew this well at least the workers didn't it seems like the landowner knew about it when they asked him he knew right away that uh, the enemy had come to do it but at least the servants never knew that this evil had been done until the wheat produced its fruit in the heads of grain while the grassy weedy um, Darnell blades remained fruitless. And when the servants realized what had happened, they went straight to the landowner and the master of the field, and they reported to him what had been done. In their interest for the master, they asked if they shouldn't go up out there into the field and immediately root up 
all the tears because they could now see the difference. They knew which was which. So this was commendable that they wanted to get rid of evil. You know, don't put them down because they wanted to do this. They, this was a good thing. We should want to get evil out of this world, shouldn't we? But the landowner, this is, this is a new form. This isn't the form of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. This is a new mystery form of the kingdom, the kingdom age that we live in. And what does the landowner say to do during this time? He says, no, don't do that. Don't pull up the tares because you might get the roots of the tares entangled with the wheat and pull out some of the wheat with the tares by mistake. He says, let both of them grow together for now. Leave them side by side until the time of the harvest, at which time I will tell my reapers to gather up the tares and burn them. So at harvest time, the reapers are going to do what? They're going to barn the wheat and burn the weeds. Barn the wheat and burn the weeds. And you know there is never a single tear in the Lord's barn. And even better to hear about is there is never a true wheat that is burned. Because his reapers do a perfect job. And who are his reapers? Well, that's jumping ahead. <laughs> Tell you whose reapers are. You probably already know. But this was, this was the simple story. A very simple story in parable form, which Jesus told to the crowd as he was sitting out there teaching on a boat in probably the Sea of Galilee. And then privately to his disciples only, he gave the interpretation. And for that interpretation, we look at verses 37 to 43. What's interesting is that he gave this interpretation after he spoke the parable of the mustard seed and leaven. So that the crowd heard the first four parables, but they did not hear the last three. They didn't even hear the last three parables, much less the interpretation. They didn't hear the interpretation of any of the parables, but at least they heard the first four parables themselves. But the interpretation was given privately just to his followers following giving the parable of the leaven. All right, let's look at the um, explanation of the parable in verses 34 to 43. Well, first of all, I'm going to read uh, verses 34 to 36, which is a little bit of an explanation. It says, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from when the foundation of the world. Did Jesus know from the foundation of the world about the mystery kingdom? that would exist? Did he know that Israel would reject him and that the literal direct rule of the messianic kingdom would have to be postponed? Yes, and this proves that he knew that. He also knew he would, that, well, and so another indication of who he is and that he spoke in parables because it was predicted in the Old Testament that the true Messiah would speak in parables. All right, verse 36, and Jesus sent the multitude away. And this is after the teaching of the parable of the mustard seed in 11, if you look up above he sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying now did they have ears to hear did they want to learn yes because look what they want him to do they say declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field they wanted understanding they wanted to understand and he answered and said unto them he that soweth the good seed is the son of man 
And who is the son of man? It's a messianic title for himself. You know, there's only one other person in the scripture who ever called him the son of man. That was his favorite title for himself. It says, verse 38, the field is the, please underline this, everybody. The field is the world. Do you know how many commentators say the field is the church? Jesus says the field is the world. And so that settles it, doesn't it? (laughs) And he says, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? The ready good soil now becomes the good seed. If you had a ready good soil type of heart, now you're the good seed. The soil becomes the seed. Isn't that neat? All right. So the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Let me just say here, because I'm running out of time, but the enemy is called three things right here. He's called the wicked one, which speaks of his role as the antagonist against God, the antagonist, the wicked one. He's called the enemy. That's his role as the adversary. And he's called the devil, which speaks of his role as the accuser. (laughs) The antagonist, the adversary, and the accuser. He says, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is when? The end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all them that offend. Do tares, children of the wicked one, offend? Yes. And them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And and then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. One thing I want you to notice is that Jesus was not caught by surprise. When the nation rejected him as her Messiah. The postponement, you know, of the messianic kingdom, the direct rule of Christ on earth in the literal messianic millennial 1,000 year kingdom was not a plan B. It wasn't like the Trinity scratching her head said, uh oh, they've rejected the king, now what are we going to do? Well, we've got to come up with another plan. Let's have a postponement mystery kingdom. And the church will be in, in that kingdom. This was planned when? Before the foundation of the world. It was something God had planned all along. Jesus told his disciples that even his revelation of this new form of the kingdom in parables had been prophesied some 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 78 too, if you want the specific reference. Nothing was unexpected. Everything was right on schedule. God had revealed through the prophet Asaph that he would one day reveal secret things in parables. And that was now exactly what the Lord Jesus, the true Messiah, was doing. If the religious leaders of Israel had had hearts willing to submit and ears willing to listen, they could have clearly known that Jesus Christ was indeed the true Messiah. But remember, they weren't willing to accept the evidence, so he sent the multitudes away, which included some of these scribes and Pharisees. He sent the multitudes away after giving them the first four parables, and then he gave the interpretation of the wheat and the tares to the disciples only. And as I said, this is good, that they desired to know God's truth. When you want to desire truth, God will give you more truth. He will give you more light. 
And second, notice that the disciples called the parable what? What did they focus on? They called it the parable of the tares. They didn't say give us the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares like we call it. The focus is on, in their minds was on the tares. This shows their primary interest. They could understand the sowing of good wheat you know, uh, and, and why it would be present in the kingdom, but they were perplexed about the tares. Why would they be permitted? Why would tares be permitted to coexist with the good wheat? Why did the landowner not have them immediately uprooted? They didn't get that. The disciples could have understood uprooting the tares because this met with the teaching of the kingdom of righteousness that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But you see such such grace in an intermediate postponement kingdom was totally foreign to them. They always thought of the kingdom as, you know, existing of the righteous with Christ, with the Messiah ruling as king with a rod of iron. This this intermediate uh, kingdom where wheat and tares would grow side by side in the kingdom that was totally foreign to them. I mean, think of James and John, the sons of thunder, when they were in Samaria and the Samaritans refused to accept Jesus Christ. What did they what did the two brothers ask Jesus to do? pull up those tares he said burn them up they they said burn them up don't you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them lord (laughs) but jesus is going to tell them about a new a a new age of grace an age of grace an age of patience with tares an age that we happen to currently live in and i'm glad for that Because you can't carry a parable too far, but you could really say this. I'm a wheat, but I was once a tear. (laughs) So I'm glad that he has patience with tares. Now, he begins his interpretation by explaining the symbolism of the parable. He tells them that the sower of the good seed is the son of man. And we know, of course, that's a reference to himself as Messiah. And next he tells them that the field is the world. The son of man is sowing in a field that belongs to him. It's his field. And this field is said to be the world itself. Not the church, but the whole world. Even though Satan is a temporary usurping ruler over this world, Jesus is still its owner. He's the one who not only created it, but he is the one who will one day redeem it and restore it to its original perfection. It's very important to remember what Jesus said, um, what Jesus said this field represents. As I told you before, he clearly says that it's the world. And I'm going to discuss that if I get to it a little further, because it would really present a problem for us if he said it was the church. All right, thirdly, the, the Lord tells them that the good seed in the parable symbolizes what? The children of the kingdom who are also called um, wheat. The word good there for good seed is kalos in Greek, which speaks of being beautiful, precious, and commendable. Isn't that neat that he talks about us in that way? We're beautiful, precious, and commendable. And this then is, is different from the first parable, the parable of the sower in which we learned that the seed was the word of God. Now those who receive the word of God become the, the, uh, the seed, the good seed. Isn't that interesting? And that's exactly what happens, really. So here it re- represents those who 
responded positively to the seed of the word of God and are now the sons of the kingdom. In other words, the Lord in this parable sowed or scattered his own people throughout the world. We are his seeds of righteousness, planted wherever he sows us. We are planted as his witnesses. We are to, therefore, bloom where we are planted, right? So that kind of, you know, wherever we are, we're to bloom. And when I think of God's sovereignty that he planted me where he planted me, then I don't get upset that he didn't plant me somewhere else. He's the one who scattered me. Here's where I landed, and here's where I need to bloom, right? And that's true for each and every one of us. I like the fact that we're also called wheat, <coughs> because wheat is benefit, beneficial to mankind all over the world, isn't it? Everywhere you go, people eat wheat, because everywhere you go, people eat bread. I primarily think of bread being made from wheat. Uh, no one blesses this world, this field, more than God's people do we he's the bread of life and we're his little loaves (laughs) some of us are not so little (laughs) so we see that those with the knowledge of the truth are to be disseminated throughout the world then jesus explained to his disciples who the tares symbolize he said that the tares are the children of the wicked one And we know, of course, that the wicked one is Satan because Jesus tells us who the enemy is. He says he is the devil. And at the same time that the Son of Man sows the seeds of righteousness and truth over the face of this globe, Satan will counter-sow this world with his corrupt emissaries. And that surely has been true. As we said earlier, the word for sowed in verse 25 carries the idea or the meaning of completeness or thoroughness. He thoroughly sows, Satan thoroughly sows his tares across the face of this world. And this has really been true because throughout histories, the tares have always out numbered the wheat much more thoroughly sown than the wheat which is what we learned in the first parable as well all right the harvest jesus says i know i'm going through this fast so make sure you read your notes but the harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels the servants in this parable are ready to root out the tares immediately as probably were the lord's disciples as evidenced by James and John. But Jesus explains that this separation of the children of the kingdom from the children of the wicked one is not to occur until the judgment at the end of the age. You know, I'm sure all the disciples would have liked, especially after the scribes and Pharisees had said that Jesus did his works in the power of Beelzebub, they would have liked to have just gone out there and uprooted them right then and there and had Jesus bring in the kingdom. You know, we'll get rid of all these people who oppose you and let's have the kingdom. But uh, Jesus says, no, we have to wait till the end of the age, and then I'll send my holy angels. So this anticipates the harvest which is going to take place at the time of the Lord's second coming, when those who have rejected the good seed of the gospel and have instead accepted the lies of Satan are going to be excluded from entering into both the millennial kingdom and then the eternal kingdom because when the millennial kingdom of god ends it merges into the eternal kingdom of god they will be cast into the furnace of fire which is of course hell and it's interesting you can think of hell um hell is just beyond our imaginations it is beyond our finite minds to comprehend and again here don't we have the lord talking about hell how many times he keeps going back to the subject of hell but think of hell as a place of tears and teeth 
that occurred to me as I was looking at the fact that they're going to be way, it says a place of wailing. That's loud, very loud crying. A place of tears, which speaks of agony of mind and soul. And it's also going to be a place of gnashing of teeth, a place of tears and teeth. And the gnashing or the grinding of teeth speaks of pain of body. It's a place of agony, the worst place of agony we could ever, ever, ever imagine. And it's agony that never ends. Mm. And, of course, it's... And on a better note, it does end on a better note because it talks about the um, the righteous shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And it's the angels who are going to perform this work at harvest time, not the children of the kingdom. The angel reapers are going to be the ones who will pull out of the kingdom or prevent from entering into the kingdom all of those who offend God with their rebellion and who are sinful in their unbelief and their rejection of God's son. And this corresponds to what we're told in Revelation, you know, where we are told that the holy angels are the agents that are used by God to be his uh, instruments of judgment. So in other words, Jesus is telling his followers, you are only to concentrate on being the sowers of my seed and to, and to be my seed itself <laughs> and to proclaim the truth of my seed where I decide to plant you. I have other agents who will do the reaping. That's not your job. You may make errors in your assessment of what is a tear and what is a wheat. You may uproot some of the wheat by error. I know even the first eight years of my life as a Christian, somebody could have come along and plucked me up because I still look pretty much like a tear. He said, you might make some errors when you pull out the tears. Oh, that rhymed. And it's interesting to know that tares or darnel is also known as creeping wheat. Creeping wheat because uh, or couch grass because the roots creep underground and become entangled and intertwined with the roots of wheat. So t- literally if they tried to pull the darnel or the tares out, some of the wheat the roots would be entangled and some of the wheat would come out. And also if the job of rooting out tares was left to humans, Uh, They would make mistakes by pulling out true wheat, which merely had not matured yet. Unmatured wheat was undistinguishable, indistinguishable from the tear. So it's only at the time of full ripening that it is possible to separate the good wheat from the worthless weeds. Now, what is the Lord telling us? Well, he is saying that the time between his first and his second coming, which includes where we live, the church age, is to be a time of evangelism, not a time of judgment. It's, he's saying that Christians are not qualified to distinguish with complete infallibility the true from the false. It's true that it is often quite clear to make a distinction between a tear and a wheat. I could go out there in the world and pretty, pretty safely point to some tears, and so could you, when the tears, you know, obviously following the ways of the world and is not at all interested in uh, Christ or his word. Or it's easy for us when a tear is proclaiming some kind of a false teaching that says Jesus is not God, he's not deity. In other words, it's easy to distinguish the roadside soil where there's no penetration at all. But it's not quite so clear to tell the difference between the rocky soil and uh, the ready soil, is it? 
or the reprobate soil and the ready soil. Both the rocky and the reprobate soil people may very easily be sitting in some of our churches. I know for a fact that they are. They may even truly believe that they are Christians, and they may have made their profession of Christ public. Others cannot see, remember, that underlying uh, bed of rock in the rocky-soiled individual. We can't see the lack of true repentance and submission to Christ. We can only see that outward show of, of emotionalism and hear his talk, which may even sound very good. But we cannot see the heart. And the same is true of the soil, which is eventually choked out by the cares of, you know, of the thorns of this world. At first, this one might appear to be growing very nicely, and nothing distinguishes him as a tear until the time of harvest, when he shows himself to really be a tear because he produces no fruit, no head of grain which distinguishes the wheat from the unfruitful poisonous ryegrass. So in this present age, contrary to what Christendom many times down through history has seen its role as being, for example, in the Crusades of the Middle Ages and in the uh, Inquisition of Rome at the time of the Protestant uh, Reformation and as in the witch hunts of the days of the Puritans, contrary to what Christendom has seen its role as being, true believers are not to be God's instrument of judgment and destruction. What happened in those ages? Many true wheat, much true wheat was pulled up. And actually a lot of times it was the tares pulling up the wheat. So rather we are to be his instruments of righteousness and truth and grace and mercy and love. We are to demonstrate in this age love for our enemies and we're to pray for them. We're to have hearts of compassion, not hearts of condemnation toward the tares. Because, as I said, we all once were tares ourselves. We're not to punish and condemn and uproot them. The separation of the wheat from the tares is to occur at the end of this new mystery kingdom. And it's to be performed by other agents than us. It's to be performed by the holy angels who definitely know the true from the false. Now, if you interpret, I'll just finish with this. If you interpret this field to be the church, the field here, to be the church instead of what Christ says, the world, and you cannot believe how many commentators say it's the church. I'd say most of them say that the field is the church. If you do that, you not only contradict what Jesus himself said, But you also run into a lot of other problems with other portions of the New Testament that teaches the church should discipline. Okay, if you interpret this parable to say that we are not to pull out tears from the church, then you have to say that the church has no right to deal with sin or with heretics within the church. And this entirely contradicts what we are told in the epistles, which repeatedly command the church to deal with sin and to, you know, there is such a thing as church discipline. And we are to deal with heretics. This is not to say that there will not be tares in the church, because we know there are. Remember, Satan sowed thoroughly throughout the whole world. So there will be tares in the church. And there will be many who have crept into the church and have intertwined with the wheat. But within the confines of the body of Christ, we are commanded to discipline those who overtly expose themselves as being tares. And we are at least to attempt to distinguish the tares from the wheat through our membership qualifications. 
but for our responsibility to the world, we are to plant the true and not pull up the false. Now, within the church, we don't judge the tares by killing them, do we? No, we merely dismiss them if they refuse to repent. We dismiss them from the membership of the church. But unlike the crusaders and all these other people down through history, they would just kill them. They would martyr them. We're not to do that. We're just to dismiss them from the church body. And Jesus exemplified this for us by his own attitude toward the tares of his day. He didn't go around killing prostitutes and publicans and Pharisees, did he? And uh, he didn't condemn and judge them. He was here to save those which are sick. He treated them with love and kindness and mercy. Even with Judas, a tear among the wheat of his own disciples, Jesus was patient and always loving. And even right up to the very end, he offered him an opportunity to repent when he dipped the bread in you know, the sop and gave it to him. Up till then, he was giving him an opportunity to repent. And then when Jesus, I mean, Judas refused to repent before they had their first quote-unquote church service, when they had their first communion, the Lord's Supper on Passover, when Judas refused to repent, then he dismissed him before they had the first church service. Get it? So that's exactly what we're to do. This is the perfect example. Jesus knew that many of the Darnells or tares of his day would become wheat, and we need to remember that same truth today and be compassionate. Well, to end on a good note, verse 43 says that the righteous shall shine forth eternally as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So Jesus, again, uh, he does end on an upbeat, and he also ends with another admonition where he says, Who hath ears? Let him hear. Everyone who hears these words should be careful to really truthfully examine himself. And I hope that you will do that, that you will examine your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You should search your heart and discover if you truly are a child of the kingdom. Because you know what? I want all of you to, sun, to shine in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom forever and ever, and not to ever have to experience the agony of hell. Who wants to do that when there's a way out? Way to go. All right, let's read the parable of the mustard seed. And for this, we will look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Matthew 13. We have only covered so far two parables in Matthew 13, the Mystery Kingdom parables, also known as the, the uh, Mystery Kingdom discourse also. I don't know if I mentioned that, but the, if you ever hear somebody talk about the Mystery Kingdom discourse, it's what we have been studying in the parables of chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. We have discussed so far the parable of the sower and the four soil types and the parable of the wheat and tares. And now today we will begin with the parable of the mustard seed, 
very difficult parables we'll be looking at this morning because the Lord did not give us the advantage of giving us his interpretation of them as he did with the disciples. They heard the interpretation, but for some reason, none of them were inspired by God the Holy Spirit to record that interpretation for us. So we're sort of on our own here. And there are, let me tell you up front, many different interpretations of these parables. So I am going to try. I've spent a lot of time studying them. I'm going to try to do the best I can with what I've got, which ain't much. (laughs) All right, let's begin. Verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Okay, the primary truth of the mystery kingdom revealed to us in the mustard seed parable is that the mystery kingdom, which remember, goes from the Lord's rejection to his return at the second coming, at the end of the the tribulation period, the, um, the primary truth in this parable is that this kingdom will have a very small beginning. The contrast in the beginning size of the mustard seed and the large plant it produced, which it says here was the size of a tree, is the major emphasis of this parable. Probably after having heard the Lord's first two parables, which were the parable of the sower and the four soil types, and then the parable of the wheat and the tares, the Lord's disciples might have been very concerned about how this new kingdom, this new form of God's indirect mediatorial kingdom, would power possibly survive in the midst of such great odds. Not only would the vast majority of the world reject the Lord Jesus Christ, remember three out of four soil types would reject him, but then Satan's um, contaminating, counterfeit, oversowing of the whole world would, influ- you know, would influence the world for evil everywhere because he would oversow the Lord's sowing with what? Tears. And it would be a thorough oversowing. So the disciples, from their own from their perspective, could not see how this kingdom would survive, much less thrive under such conditions, such negative conditions. After all, they were only a handful themselves of very unsophisticated men, you know, Galilean fishermen, not very educated, not very sophisticated, not very noble, not very mighty. You know, all that sort of thing. They were not only up against tremendously, the tremendously huge and strong pagan empire of Rome, but now even their own people were turning from Jesus, believing the conclusion of the, their religious real, rulers that the, um, even the, the uh, final witness of the triune Godhead, the witness of the Holy Spirit, was not adequate for them to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So how in the world could 12 men, and one of them, they didn't know this, but even one of them was a what? A tear. So really, we're speaking of 11 men. How could they ever affect the world for, for Christ? How could the kingdom of, of heaven in this new form ever grow and prosper in a world that so, was so heavily opposed to, to Jesus? Well, in this parable of the mustard seed, the Lord teaches them not to be discouraged and not to be depressed by such a small beginning. Because not only would the gospel 
and the kingdom of God survive in a world of very heavy opposition, but they would actually thrive as an influence to all the world. The kingdom was eventually going to stretch across the entire globe. When would that occur? When will that occur? Has it occurred yet? No, but it will occur when the Lord returns to set it up physically, which we read about over in Revelation eleven fifteen, where it says the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus, again, he was trying to encourage his men and his other followers. He, he again used the illustration of planting something that the people of that day could easily understand. He again used an agricultural illustration. He compared the kingdom of heaven, which he's been describing, of course, in this new mystery form. He he compared it to a mustard seed. He said that a man took a grain of mustard seed, and what did he do with it? He sowed it. In other words, he planted it in his field. And then he stated in verse 32 that although this mustard seed is the least of all seeds, when it grew, what happened? It became so big that they said it was like a tree. And it became a shelter of shade and even a home. And it provided food for who? The birds. Because they, especially finches, I guess, over there, like to eat the... um, the mustard seeds off of that mustard bush or tree. So this is the simple parable. Not too complicated. Anybody could, back in that day, could say, okay, man took a mustard seed, planted the ground, and a big tree came up from it. And as I said before, the Gospels do not give us the interpretation that the Lord privately did give to his disciples. Because we know that from Mark 4.34. So it has been up to God the Holy Spirit to interpret this parable for us, which I pray he will do even now as we will attempt to do just that and break it down. But first of all, before we get into an interpretation of the parable, we do need to discuss the botanical accuracy of the Lord's words. Because unbelievers and critics like to use this particular parable to do what? criticize the inerrancy of scripture they like to criticize the lord's words here because they say that he made an error the lord made an error in stating that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds because uh they they will point out the botanical scientists will point out to us that the wild orchid seed is smaller than the mustard seed and so this becomes you know seems something trivial that we shouldn't have to speak about, but it becomes a critical matter for us because if the Lord didn't know any better, then he's not all-knowing, right? He's not omniscient. And if he's not omniscient, what does that mean? He's not God. And if he's not God, his death meant nothing because he wasn't the sinless Savior who could die for our sins. So this little trivial thing, little small as a mustard seed, it becomes an important subject that we need to discuss. So, first of all, uh, how is this problem solved? Well, if we look at the Greek word that is used for seeds in verse 32, it is the word, the Greek word sperma. Sperma. And whenever this word sperma is used in the New Testament, agriculturally speaking, now it is also used to speak of of, uh, human reproduction, 
but whenever it is used agriculturally, it always refers to plants that are grown purposely for food consumption. In this parable, then, the Lord Jesus is not comparing the mustard seed with all seeds in existence. Rather, he is comparing the mustard seed to all other garden seeds, seeds that are grown, you know, that grow plants for food or for flavoring. Even though it's true that the wild orchid and some mustard-related weeds and wildflowers, such as the chickweed, the pigweed, amaranth, and other seeds from those families, do have seeds that are smaller than the basic mustard seed, it is also true that they were not included within the meaning of the original word that Jesus used for seed here. And also the word herbs that he used, again in verse 32. The word for herbs is lachanon in the Greek. Both, both of these words, sperma and lachanon, referred to garden plants grown specifically for the purpose of being eaten, as opposed to something that grows wild. All right, that's point one. Then secondly, it's also a fact that all of the seeds that were known and grown in the Lord's day in Israel, in other words, back in first century Israel, all the seeds that were known in Jewish husbandry, of all of them, the mustard seed was truly indeed the smallest. The only modern crop in existence that is smaller than the mustard seed is tobacco. And I don't know how many of you eat tobacco, but I hope you don't. Now, not too good to smoke it, and I don't think it's too good to even chew it, but if we don't, eat it. So, And it was also of American origin, and the tobacco was not grown in the old world until the 16th century or later. So... And in addition, well, I already said that tobacco is not grown as an herb or, a, you know, to be eaten for food consumption. So that was the second point. All right. The third point is that the phrase small as a mustard seed was a Jewish proverb. It was this is a proverbial statement that the Lord was making. It was a proverb that a proverb that the Jews and even the Arabs Used and still used to this day to indicate that something very minute in size. Such as, you know, we, we use Proverbs all the time. We'll say that somebody is stubborn as a mule or somebody is as wise as an owl. You See, you know those, don't you? <laughs> and well, owls aren't really all that wise. I mean, there certainly are other creatures that are wiser than an owl. And we say things like he's clever as a box and all we have all sorts of proverbs so this was just a common proverb that was very frequently used even by the rabbis to refer to the least amount of something even though the use of the original words support the fact that jesus did speak botanically accurately you know scientifically accurately his primary purpose here wasn't to be scientific he wasn't trying to be scientific. Now, because he is omniscient God, he was accurate scientifically. But that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was just to be proverbial. And so he used one of the very common Jewish expressions of that day to get across the point that the kingdom of heaven would start out very small. 
small as a grain of mustard seed. And this expression we find used again over in Matthew 17, 20, when it says faith, it compares faith as small as a mustard seed, will be able to do what? Move mountains. And then it's found again in Luke 17, 6, where it says that faith is a grain of a mustard seed. If you have faith as grain of, of a mustard seed, you can say to a sycamine tree, um, be uprooted or go into the sea or something like that, and it will obey you. You can look that up and get the direct translation. But it's just a common proverb. But Jesus was accurate. You know, regardless of which way you want to look at this parable, bottom line is he was accurate. And guess what? He always is. Always. All right, another thing that has been criticized about this parable is the size to which the mustard plant grows. The critics say that the Lord Jesus exaggerated. And that, you know, when he said that the the mustard seed grew, it it says, uh, and becometh a tree. And those who attack his point here are probably only familiar with varieties of mustard plants that grow into small bushes. Have any of you seen a mustard tree lately in this country? No. I guess maybe somebody's planted one, but but, uh, they don't know that the mustard, the black mustard plant of Israel, especially in the rich fertile soil of the Jordan Valley and the climate that they have over there, amazingly would grow and still does grow to a height of 12 to 15 feet. And that will be in just one season. I know that a couple years ago I told you we bought those, I don't know what they're called scientifically, or the the angel trumpet. Those things, man, once they get going, it's just amazing. It seems like overnight they'll grow like a couple inches. But uh, that's how fast the mustard tree, mustard bush, mustard seed will grow under the ideal conditions in Israel, the black mustard it's called. So this, again, is true. Jesus was accurate. And the people he was talking to knew this. They didn't argue that point. They'd seen, they knew. They knew. One man just said that a, a man on a horse could ride under the mustard tree. So the main point is that the Lord's disciples would have been encouraged by this parable. They would have had no difficulty understanding the illustration of the mustard seed. They knew how small this seed was and how large the plant could grow. And they would understand, remember, he was directly speaking to them, the people of that day, not to you and I, not to the critics. He was speaking to them. They would have understood that Jesus was telling them that their very small and insignificant numbers one day would grow into an amazing size, almost a miraculous size, despite the opposition of Satan and the many tares that he would plant and the three-fourths of soil types that would reject him. Now, a second point that the Lord made through this parable was that the kingdom of heaven in its intermediate mystery form would be a blessing to the rest of the world. The symbolism of a tree in the Old Testament scriptures was familiar to the disciples. Both Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his kingdom of Babylon, and also the Assyrian kingdom are described in Ezekiel and elsewhere in Daniel as large trees. That Their kingdoms are equated with large trees, which provided some shelter and some influence, of course, for the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. What Christ is saying is that the kingdom of heaven was going to grow so big in its influence that many 
will find shelter and protection from it. And this doesn't mean that the birds that come to rest in the branches of the mustard seed are necessarily a part of the kingdom, but they will benefit from the presence of the kingdom on this earth. Has this world benefited from the presence of the kingdom on earth? Absolutely. In many, many ways, more than they ever could imagine. We actually preserve it from destroying itself. So just as birds make nests in the branches of trees and therefore benefit from the presence of the tree, so many peoples and nations would be benefited by the presence of the tree in their midst, the kingdom tree. Although three out of four soil types of human hearts reject belonging directly to the kingdom of Christ, yet the ready soil hearts, which do accept the Lord Jesus Christ, They serve as a source of benediction, a source of blessing to the rest of the world. Whether this world wants to admit it or not, it has been extremely blessed and benefited and influenced by Christianity. Where did our calendar come from? Came from the birth of Christ, Christianity. Um, Where did our high standards of ethics from the Judeo-Christian religion Where did our justice system and our education system and our human rights and the dignity of women and uh, many social works that go on in charities and prison reform, etc., etc., all of those things are a product of of Christianity in this world. Just Just go to a country where Christianity wasn't, didn't have any influence and you'll see a big, huge difference. First, just as 1 Corinthians 7.14 tells us the, that the unbelieving marriage partner in an unequally yoked union, marriage union, is benefited, the unbeliever in a marriage uh, relationship is benefited and blessed by the believing spouse so that the home is even sanctified, so is this unbelieving world benefited and blessed by the presence of the true church within it the kingdom of God within it. True believers are the what of the earth? The salt of the earth and the light of this world. We prevent this world from total decay. We're what prevent prevent it from entering into total darkness. So this parable was given to encourage the disciples by showing them that in spite of the magnitude of the opposition symbolized by the three bad soils and by the counter-sowing of the tares, yet the kingdom of heaven, very small at first, will sprout in great outward influence over this earth. Not all, not all will be influenced internally, but the world would be outwardly benefited by the presence of the church, the kingdom of, of God in its midst. Now, I know there are different interpretations to that. Study it on your own, see what you come up with. But I see this as he encouraging his disciples and not discouraging them. All right, same thing with the parable of the leaven. Let's look at that next. Parable of the leaven. Now, this one primarily is usually interpreted. It was, I should say, by commentators maybe 100 years ago or so, but... More and more modern commentators are going with the influence interpretation rather than the iniquity interpretation. 
And you may have grown up hearing that leaven is always evil, but I want to teach you a different idea about that. All right, let's look at Matthew 13, 33, where the Lord says, Another parable spake he unto them, the king, and here's what he said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto what? Leaven. Would you under, uh, underline that? The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Not like unto the loaves or the meal, but the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. You know what that means? You equate leaven with the kingdom, the kingdom with leaven. Remember that. We need to always look specifically at what the Lord says, not what we think he says. All right, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, which is equivalent to a bushel. That's a lot of bread dough. Till the whole was what? Leavened. All right. Very simple parable. It would really be probably better for us to understand or think of this as the parable of the leaven hidden in the meal. Now, the meal is just another term for um, the flour or the bread dough, the dough. Because calling it the parable of the leaven really places the emphasis on what leaven is. But that's not the point that the Lord Jesus is making here. He is emphasizing in this parable what leaven does, not what it is. His emphasis is on how leaven works. Leaven is what? What do we call it mostly today? Yeast or sourdough or starter. That's what that's what he's talking about. Uh, when starter or yeast is first introduced into flour, what happens? It begins a steady, continuous, irreversible, bubbly, inside you can't see it process, right? <laughs> and this process works quietly. It's it works unseen within the dough until all of the dough is eventually leavened. Three measures of of meal, as I said, is the equivalent to a bushel. Have any of you ever made a bushel of bread? I mean, that would make a lot of loaves. (laughs) A whole bushel of meal would make a lot of bread. But the Jewish women usually made this much at a time, since bread was one of their major food sources. In contrast to the large amount of flour used... The saved piece of leaven, or or starter, sourdough, was used from the, as you do if some of you that make bread on a regular basis, it was used from the last batch of bread. And in contrast to the large amount of meal, this was just a very small amount. Now the parables, by the way, are really pair-a-bulls. You could spell it P-A-I-R. A bulls because it's amazing, and we'll talk about this. I hope next week or whenever. <laughs> but the the very first parable and the eighth parable. Remember, I said there's only seven, but we do have an eighth parable in Matthew 13. It talks about the responsibility of the disciples now that they heard this truth, how they were to be like householders and share it. But anyway, the first parable and the eighth parable are a pair. The second parable and the seventh parable are a pair. I'm not going to get into it and tell you what all that is now. But the third and the fourth are a pair. 
which are what we're discussing right now, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, are a pair. Start out with something small, has great influence. One is speaking about an external influence. The other is speaking about an internal, the mustard seed, external influence on the world. Leaven, internal influence on the world, speaking of the kingdom. All right. And then the fifth and the sixth parables, which, Lord willing, we're also going to discuss this morning, the parable of the treasure, the hidden treasure, and the parable of the pearl of great price are also a pair. So they really are pair of bulls. Now, how did I get onto that? Why did I get onto that? (laughs) Anyway, um, so just, okay, like the mustard seed parable, what we have is a contrast between the large amount of meal and the small little bit of, uh, of yeast or leaven. So the point, again, is that small things can have very great influence. What's that saying? Uh, uh, big things come in little packages or valuable things can come in little packages or whatever our little saying is. That's true. You can get a little tiny package and it might have a diamond in it, right? <laughs> Even one missionary, one sole missionary in a large country such as David Livingston in the, in the continent of Africa can have a tremendous influence. Or Hudson Taylor in China can have great internal influence because of the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus was teaching by this parable that this intermediate form of the kingdom would not be established by outward force, as many had thought. Isn't that even what his disciples thought? You know, that he would come riding on a horse and conquer Rome through outward force. That's what the zealots were all about. Let's take them, you know, let's have a war and beat them. But he was teaching here, no, 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 my kingdom isn't going isn't gonna to take over that way. It's going to operate by an internal power, the power of the Holy Spirit. This inward process would be slow, but it would be continuous, and it would be progressive, and its influence would be positive. Is the influence of the kingdom of God in this world positive or negative? Good or evil? Good, good. Leavened bread is, I don't know how you feel about it, but leavened bread is tastier. It's softer. It's spongier. When it comes right out of the oven, oh, you put some butter on it and it melts on it. It's so much better than a hard piece of matzah. (laughs) Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is comparable to, I'm getting, uh, my saliva glands are going here. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is comparable to leaven hidden in meal. The the, uh, kingdom of God present in the believers is what gives this world its taste and its flavor. Remember we talked about this and the fact that we're the salt of this world. It's the most positive influence that this world has in it. Would you agree to that? There is no, no more positive influence in this world than the presence of the Holy Spirit living in within believers. Right now in the church age and in the tribulation, it will be in the tribulation saints. Of course, the Spirit won't live within them, but the Holy Spirit will still be working through them. Without the influence of the word of life, God's the Holy Bible, and the Holy Spirit working from within in this world, people would be without any hope of rising 
like bread with leaven. People would be without any hope of rising out of the insipidness and the darkness and the hopelessness of this world. And you know, leaven, another thing about leaven is you can't stop the process once you've inserted the yeast, can you? I mean, you can maybe yank off the end of the dough and get it out of there first, but once it's in there, it's unstoppable. Nothing can stop it. The same thing, we're talking collectively about the kingdom or the church, but what about us individually? Once the Holy Spirit is in us, is there any way that it can be stopped from making us completely conformed into the image of Christ? No, nothing. Once, once the Holy Spirit is inserted within this lump of dough, Nothing can pull it out. Nothing can stop it. I will be being confident of this very thing that one day we will be conformed into his image. I know I didn't say that right, but when I get up here, I forget my verses. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He will complete it. Now, I want you to be aware of the fact that leaven in the scripture can refer to something that is a good influence or a bad influence. Leaven itself is neutral. It all depends on how it's used in the context. The primary uh, point of leaven concerns its influence. This, This is leaven's distinctive attribute. There are definitely, I'm not going to argue with those who say leaven, you know, speaks of evil, because there are definitely times in the scripture where leaven is to be interpreted as something with an evil influence. Such as when the Lord said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. What he's really saying is beware of the influence of hypocrisy or, or the, you know, the influence of the Pharisees. Um, here, however, and by the way, they, they, the, those who take this interpretation say that leaven is always spoken of as evil in the scripture, but that is not true. And, and many of the times in the New, well, most, when it is spoken, it's in the New Testament. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples before the New Testament was written. So they don't have this concept of leaven equaling evil in their minds. Now, they do have the idea in their minds of leaven in conjunction with the Passover. And what you remember for seven days, at the time of the Passover, they were to clean their houses of all leaven, the Jewish people. Not, they weren't to have any leaven at all in their homes. And then for the next seven days, they were to bake their bread without any leaven. So that's where the little flat matzo crackers come, come from. But then the rest of the year, they did eat leavened bread. And at the Feast of uh, Pentecost, they were actually told to offer God bread baked with leaven. So were they to offer God something evil? As an offering? No. The reason they were to, for seven days, not have anything with leaven in it is because they were, it was symbolic of putting away their old life in Egypt. They had left Egypt. So they were to, that they were to commemorate the leaving of the old life behind, you know, leaving behind the leaven of Egypt, the influence of Egypt. But the rest of the year, leaven was a good thing. They, they knew that they'd rather eat leavened bread than they would unleaven. So that's against the argument of those who always say that it, that it is equated with evil. However, here again, I point out the fact that um, we have the Lord saying that the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Now that rhymes. Somebody could make a poem out of that. 
He does not say that the kingdom of heaven is equated with evil. That would just totally be contradictory of everything about the Lord. Because the kingdom is equated with the king. And he certainly isn't evil. Those who interpret this parable as saying that there's an evil influence in in the world... You know, and there's an evil influence in even, you know, the church, which is true, of course. But what they're really doing is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like unto the meal into which the leaven is put. They're saying that the kingdom of heaven is 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 like the loaves. You know, let's equate the loaves for a minute with the church. And yes, there is evil in the church. We know that because even the tares are sown into the church. But Jesus didn't say the kingdom of heaven is like unto the loaves into which the leaven was put, did he? He said the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. So he's speaking about the influence. And again, to match it up with the parable of the mustard seed, I believe that he is talking about a positive influence. When the kingdom of heaven today is reflected in the individual lives of believers like you and me, it's influence like leaven is going to be positive and it's going to be pervasive. We will have a spiritual and moral and ethical leavening effect upon this world. I hope you do anyway in your circle of influence. You should. And it's not our power that does this. It's the power of the living Christ within us that makes us effective to those who we know and who we hopefully try to influence. All right, in summary then, we have learned that Jesus was not surprised by the reception that he was receiving among his own people. He had foreseen from the foundation of the world the rejection of his person and the postponement of the literal millennial messianic kingdom. His announcement, therefore, of a mystery form of the kingdom or an intermediate form between his two advents was something he had known about all along. It was not some kind of backup plan or plan B that he went to. He knew all about the church that he was going to establish during this mystery kingdom age. He knew what it was going to be like. He knew that it was going to be characterized by the sowing of the word of God, to which there would be different responses depending on the condition of the heart soil of the individual. He says that there, he he knew that there was going to be a false counter sowing. By Satan, which actually began when? Right after God planted Adam and Eve, who came along to counter sow? Satan. So it's been going on from the very beginning. But the Lord knew about this false counter sowing of Satan even during this intermediate form of the kingdom. And he knew that it would be thorough and that it would be worldwide and that it would be so thorough that there would even be tares in the church. But however, this is not to be discouraging news. He tells his men, this isn't to be discouraging. Yes, uh, um, the beginning of the interval kingdom would be very small, he's admitting to them. It would be very small. It started on the day of Pentecost with only 120 people. Quickly grew, didn't it? Influence was great. Quickly grew to how many were saved when Peter preached? 3,000 more, so it it grew, and it kept on growing. But he says, yes, at the beginning, it's going to be very small as a mustard seed or as a small piece of leaven hidden within a big batch of dough. Yet, its influence both, both externally upon the world and internally would be miraculously great. 
You know, remember how we talked about 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. In other words, once this process of growth began, which was by how the sowing of the Word of God, that's how it begins, uh, the conti- and it would be continued by then the sowing of the children of the kingdom. Remember how the the, the seed becomes, we're, we start out as soil, but we become this scattered seed ourselves. The soil becomes the seed. We as the children of the kingdom are then scattered ourselves to bloom where we're planted. Well, once it began by the sowing of the seed and then the continuation of the scattering of the children of the kingdom, it would not be stopped. It could not be stopped. Nothing could stop it. Has anything stopped it? Have, have men tried to stop it? Have they tried to burn all the Bibles and kill all the Christians and end it? Is it unstoppable? One day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. Praise the Lord for that.